as soon as I, you know, got into LSAT land, I just fell in love with it. It was such a relief. It made me feel like just intellectually awake in a way I had never felt. It was like finally there was a thing that was hard enough that I could mm-hmm. never gist it. I could never half pay attention. I had to give it everything that I had. And it was so perfect and rewarding in how. One, two, Hey everyone, so happy to have with us today Ellen Cassidy. She's the CEO and founder of Elemental Prep. They are an online Hogwarts for Elsa. Love that description. (laughs) Ellen's going to tell us all about it and how we can maybe even read a little better. Um, And she's also the author of Loophole. It's an LSAT logical reasoning book, number one selling guide on Amazon with $0 in marketing spend. Super, super impressive. Uh, She's also the number one LSAT teacher in the world by revenue, y'all. We're so lucky to have her here. How did Ellen get on this journey? So sounds like she impulsively bought an LSAT prep book after (laughs) she was at a party and talked to some lawyer who told her some fun, interesting stories. Uh, loved prepping for the exam, felt like her brain ramped up to the 70, from 70% to 100% capacity and just wished she could do the LSAT forever. Man, you are so, you're so special. I remember studying for the MCAT, Ellen, and I wish I had you back then. Um, so she got into Harvard Law, deferred three times and was helping students through the stress of studying for the exam founded Elemental Prep to teach folks to read and, and critically analyze information and formalize her teaching curriculum and boom, found a way to do the LSAT forever. Not only is she so cool professionally, but she's also got a, a very fascinating personal story, which we'll invite her to share. She's on a mission to show everyone that ceilings are imaginary. And then on top of that, she's just such a cool girl. I love her. (laughs) She lives in Austin. I love hanging out with her. And so I'm glad for y'all to get to know her today. Welcome, Ellen, to the show. Thank you. Oh, man, I should have you introduce (laughs) me wherever I go. (laughs) I'm here. Just call me. I'm ready. (laughs) So, so stoked to get to dive in with you. I know I just gave a bit of an intro, but I always want to give the opportunity for you to tell folks in your own words, who is Ellen? Yeah. Well, I'll I'll start at, at the beginning. So I think I had a bit of an unlikely trajectory um, or what folks might think is unlikely, but actually probably isn't as unlikely as one might think. Yeah. Um, that my upbringing, I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia or originally Western Pennsylvania before that, but then my formative years in Northeast Philly. And my upbringing was really characterized by like uh, hard drugs and addiction and things like that in, in my household um, that... I, I grew up being, you know, a seven-year-old at an NA meeting. Like, this is not 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 great for that kind of kid. And um, my mom had a, had a heroin addiction that eventually caused her to, you know, leave my household when I was 11 and then only show up really very intermittently or chaotically um, throughout my teenage years um, and then eventually overdosed um, on heroin when I was in my early 20s. And, like... I, I like, you know, bringing these stories up because it does relate to the whole ceilings or imaginary situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a half sister who has had, you know, a similar relationship with drugs and who has fallen into criminal situations and things like that. And 
it's just it's very important to me to be a living example that where you come from is not where you're going and that you have control of your own destiny even when people tell you you don't um that you get to make that decision um so yeah that's a little how that is really inspiring how were you able to take that agency for yourself for your own story growing up I mean, I felt like I didn't really have like a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when I was very, very little, I was like fascinated by academic learning. I think it's because I probably got a lot of good feedback of like, you're good at this, you know, over and over. And I developed a like positive relationship with testing from a very young age because like when your life is very chaotic, and, but you always see 99th percentile, 99th percentile, 99th percentile over and over again. I think it functions as like this kind of comfort that it's like, but I'm special. I can do it. And I will always remember when I was in third grade, I went up to a, a librarian with a college book and said, which one's the best and the farthest away? And she said, Stanford. And I said, that's where I'm going. And she was like, okay, little girl. Um, <laughs> but like, I really did believe that, uh, like wholeheartedly, that like, that's what I am going to do. And then, you know, I, I got expelled from high school at the end of my junior year of high school for okay. starting a gay prom. Um, <laughs> and so definitely upset the apple cart in terms of, you know, the, the laser sharp trajectory <laughs> to Stanford undergrad. That's, that's so fascinating because to me, that's like shows such original thinking. I'm like, how do we reward you for starting this? See, and when you aren't in the... Northeast Philly echo chamber, or I guess I didn't live in Northeast Philly, the Philadelphia area echo chamber, then, you know, that becomes obvious. But at the time, everybody I knew was like, wow, you really screwed up. You know, this wow. is this is very bad. And it was only I had a friend's dad who I didn't even know who was like, oh, this is great for her. But it was like some rumor I heard that a dad said this. And so mm-hmm. it was like, oh, maybe a glimmer of hope and, you know, still applied and did get in and, you know, everything worked out. But I mean, I thought I had really really messed it up (laughs) and so it was a it felt like being you know rescued off the brink of defeat yeah so but coming back to the time when you were growing up in this environment Mm -hmm. I guess paint a picture for me of maybe so you felt like you had no choice and you really latched on to because school because you were good at school were there any other support systems or just systems people you had in place no not at all I, I I mean, it's not like I was, you know, growing up on, you know, on the sidewalk in a cardboard box or something. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, like I, I raised raised by a single father who, you know, was mm-hmm. there for me. And, but I would say, in terms of like go getterness and emotional support, direction, and all of that, that was very much internally derived. Mm-hmm. Um, that I. I always say that there's you know one person who ever found me and was like, I'm going to help her. And that's Dave Kaloran, who's my mentor, who owns a, um, a big LSAT test prep company um, named PowerScore. And when I found the LSAT, after I found the LSAT, I, we developed like a friendship and he's now been my mentor for over 10 years. And that relationship, it means so much to me because it, it felt like the first time in my life. And I met Dave when I was, you know, in my early 20s or something like that or mid 20s. And when somebody actually was like, no, I'm going to help her and I'm going to give to her and pour into her. And 
it, it felt like that like once in a lifetime chance that I felt like I always missed out on of like that, you know, interested older person who's going to like yeah. show you the ropes. And I think finding that with Dave when I was in my 20s really showed me how much I did not have it yeah. in other environments. Yeah. Which again, to your point, is so cool of you, your origins don't need to dictate your journey or your destination at all. Yeah. How, what was it like then when you got to Stanford, the undergrad, the, the transition for you? How was it that? It was so funny. Cause like, I definitely Cause it's felt such like, an idyllic campus too, right? Oh yeah. It looks like paradise. I definitely thought like, this is me winning the lottery and like me, you know, the beginning of my like victory lap around life, you know, very mm -hmm. silly ideas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I remember when I got there, that was when I was kind of introduced to the concept of imposter syndrome. I remember on the mm -hmm. first day of orientation, they had, we were all like in you know, some big speech environment and I'm sitting there and somebody was like, and you probably think that you didn't, you know, we made a mistake. You didn't deserve to be here, but we don't make mistakes. Look around. And I'm just there like, speak for yourself. <laughs> like, I fought my way into here. I deserve to be here. <laughs> like it, it was this odd thing because I felt like everyone else was on like a very different, different page, page where yeah. they were like, yeah, you know, how do I really deserve it? And I was like, yeah, like, you know what? I cut I've been off through. my right hand to be here. Like I, <laughs> it was so like I have to deserve. It. I fought for this so hard, yeah. and like there was definitely a bit of a a cultural divide. And I mm -hmm. think like I, I went to my my freshman year roommate's house at one point over Thanksgiving, and I saw that they had like a racquetball court, and I had like never seen a racquetball court. Oh my gosh, Ellen, I so relate. <laughs> <laughs> let alone in their house and i was like what but yeah it it was like little things that yeah just let me know that i was you know yeah different not typical we we did a game once called crossing the line and it was me and one girl who had been in foster care they just kept on crossing the line of having all these experiences happen to us and everyone else not and then yeah. it was it, you know it's this game where it's supposed to show that everybody's together and the same and you know we're a community but I actually thought it functioned to show the exact opposite, yeah. you know, that, yeah. oh, no, Ellen and this other person have very, very different lives than everyone else here. All right, now go back to your rooms. And I mean, ultimately, I, I don't think these things, I really let them bother me that much. It was just kind of confirming something I already knew and yeah. gave me like probably just a little bit more of a chip on my shoulder to prove myself more and more and more over and over again. Yeah. I I certainly in the sense that, so I also, I grew up in Sierra Leone, which is bottom five poorest countries in the world. And I came to the US at 16 for undergrad, but then I went to business school at Stanford. And so this was the most wealth I'd ever been exposed to is when I got there. And I also remember they had a session at the beginning. Oh, darn it. I'm like forgetting, but something along the same lines of, oh yeah. Um, like we are also, you are also privileged and and for me, this line, I'd never heard this line before in my life that I, I was like, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, like, I really don't come from much. Yes, I am now. And it took a lot of internalization. Yes, I am now very privileged to be here. This is such a great opportunity. And um, mm -hmm. like giving back, like 
like they there's it's kind of a shit show like who gets in and who doesn't things like that and and that was a privilege um but that was for me also kind of like a shock to hear that because I I hadn't really associated myself with privilege much before yeah um a lot of luck in life but yeah uh and then truly I think it took me years to become more comfortable and accustomed to the level of wealth and opportunity which I think a lot of you know, I, I really find a ton of appreciation in my background, right? Like not coming from a lot of opportunity has built so much resilience and strength and perseverance in me yeah. that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, and then now having access to opportunities, I think just catapults me even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it took, it definitely took me a moment to recalibrate to this new way of being. Um, yeah. And then, and then on top of that, Stanford campus is just so gorgeous too. It was like, whoa! It's like, what yeah. dream am I waking up in every, every morning? What's happening here? Uh, but it was a, it was a beautiful time for me too. Yeah, it's like you're living in a postcard. But like, yeah. I, it's actually funny. I don't think I've ever really had a conversation with someone about this, where mm. all of a sudden you're being told this word privilege that you don't really understand fully how it applies to you, and. Of course, I'm not saying I'm not privileged and that I wasn't even privileged at the time. There were a lot of people who were in a lot worse situations than I was. Mm-hmm. But it when when you first enter that like hyper-privileged environment, I feel like mm-hmm. you don't really understand. And you're like, oh gosh, is there something I'm missing? Like what who got the memo? Like what right. oh, oh, oh. And <laughs> in a way, it's this like reinforcing of how different oh, you are you because you don't understand. Exactly. I so relate. Like, because I feel like there were folks who came in knowing and had some sort of agenda. And I was just, I had no idea. <laughs> I feel like I learned after graduation. I was like, oh, this was the agenda. I see. Oh, um, right. <laughs> and I think generally now I am, of course, much more mindful and aware and am you know, much more privileged than, now than I was then. Yeah. Um, but I, like I said, I felt like I just, you know, won the lottery, cheated fate. Like I get to be here and like I'm with all these people who are, you know, like best and smartest and most accomplished and all of this stuff. And it's like that sense of feeling like I got to belong. Mm-hmm. Like it was like I was so high on that feeling that I got to be there. I got right. to be a part of this group of people that it was like I couldn't I couldn't let myself fathom that I really didn't belong because it yeah. would have broken me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Totally. And also I feel like you you your journey there was very different from the journey that most other folks had to walk to get there too. So I don't know, like selfishly I'm defending this freshman version of Ellen and of course she belongs are you kidding me <laughs> no. uh, I mean I, I definitely would have had a very different experience if I had let that voice have right. a conversation and, like, and it's so normal don't. it's yeah. so normal to have this voice and I think a lot of the self-management and self-coaching is finding your inner ally to kind of talk nicely to that voice thank you very much but we do belong yeah. Um, we do deserve to be here and just building up that relationship with that ally. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, so getting in Stanford, eventually finding your community, feeling the sense of belonging. I want to take that into how you eventually launched Elemental Prep. What happened in between anything? Oh. 
formative, important before we talk about elemental? Because I have so many questions for you. On your yes. Business. So I'll, I'll give the, the brief fast forward. So and one caveat, I don't know that I actually did find a community at Stanford. Um, I think I I very much wanted to tell myself the story that Mm -hmm. I belonged and I I, like I earned this and I'm here but I think amongst peers I don't really think I I understood the things I didn't know I don't think I understood the social cues the networking like all of the soft skills I really didn't have which nobody was teaching you this no and so I think I in a way wasted slash missed out on a lot of what I could have done in terms of community there. And so, you know, I graduated wonderful. I then did a year long uh, dramaturgy internship at the American Conservatory Theater because I thought I was going to be a playwright. Um, I was very into like performing arts and things like that at the time. I'd uh, I'd had like an improv and acting background. And so then I started an MFA program in playwriting in New Jersey. Um, after that year at Rutgers or at the American Conservatory Theater and at Rutgers, I dropped out after one semester, um, after being bullied out of the hmm. program. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Who's bullied out of an MFA program? This girl. Yeah. Um, Wait, what, I mean, what happened? What did happen? I mean, I think I, it's really funny because I think they stereotyped me as a, very different from them privileged smart person and they saw themselves as much more you know gritty and that I was you know an ego egomaniac or something and they mm-hmm. had to bring me down a peg to the point where you know people would you know refuse to comment on my work because they didn't like me at one point um my roommates like called the police on me and the police come and like harass me i mean it, it was just like a whole I'm so sorry bad situation i mean the head of the directing program was like well it seems like no one likes you here i mean it was just things that like don't seem realistic were mm-hmm. happening and i was just so so unhappy and i i look back now at all those experiences that happen at rutgers and i always think failure is a trampoline mm-hmm. that as bad as Rutgers was, I am glad that it was as bad as it was because it got me out of there real quick and got me off the theater path real quick. And to the point where, you know, I don't have any worries about the road less traveled at all. And so I left pretty quickly. And, but the other silver lining is at the time I managed to finagle my way into a part-time lecturing position in the English department during that one semester. And I really liked teaching the freshman comp class that I was teaching. And so then when I came back to Palo Alto and I was living with my boyfriend at the time, it's like, oh God, quarter life crisis, what am I going to do? And this is <laughs> when, you know, the hot tub party comes into play. happen this yes. is when you found out about the LSAT exactly and, and so you have to you know reach that total right. nadir to it's be almost just like super right. desperate this feeling of rock bottom yes and I remember exactly. I had a quarter life crisis as well so like 25 exactly. like what am what I am gonna, I gonna do? do with my life this is bad and yeah. you know I was really happy because I got like a contractor gig writing job descriptions for Palantir I was like my big break And so I was, you know, sitting around feeling sorry for myself and my best friend, who is now the um, 
associate dean at Northwestern Law School was like, Ellen, oh, wow. you got to get out of here. You got to come to this party. Like Michael's having this hot tub party. And I was like, I Michael's the last person I would ever want to go to a party with hot tub in the name. Like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, I'm not someone who like goes to parties and yeah. he's like come on please you know you've got to get out please 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 and I look back at like how consequential that decision was of like oh fine all right I'll go and so I did not go near any kind of hot tub related activity but I just sat in the guy's living room and there was a public defender who was there and she was telling me all these funny stories about her clients and I was just laughing and laughing and I was like <laughs> you know what I should take the LSAT. Yeah. I've, I don't know what else I'm going to do. I should just like, do it. <laughs> I should just take, you know, I've always liked tests. I can yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can do it. And I literally bought some LSAT prep books on my phone at the party. I was like, this is going to be my new trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> so then it was like, I so desperately wanted a project to like mm -hmm. go toward that as soon as I, you know, got into LSAT land, I just fell in love with it. It was such a relief. It made me feel like just intellectually awake in a way I had never felt. It was like finally there was a thing that was hard enough that I could mm -hmm. never gist it. I could never half pay attention. I had to give it everything that I had. And it was so perfect and rewarding in how it would engage back. And I was just like, well, this is great. And that was a great two and a half months. And then, you know, got a got a great score and was like, all right, I guess I have to apply to law school. Because I did this very hard test. Because I, you know, I, I got a good it. score and <laughs> there was that funny story. So I guess this is a career for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a great way to just find out your next career in general. Exactly. <laughs> Listen to a funny story at a party. Yeah. Um, and so I... The best school I got into was Harvard, and I deferred three times before finally saying no. But in that first deferral was definitely the most impactful. And I look back at, I had a friend who was a 3L at Harvard at the time. He was a third-year law student. And he was like, Ellen, just make me one promise. If there's any other thing you could ever see yourself doing, just try and do that before you come here. Oh, wow. And... I was like, well, why? He's like, because I know you and I know this is not the place for you. <laughs> and what a good I, friend. I know. I know. Because I, I think a lot of since. people would hesitate to share that. Really? Yeah. Just like not wanting to yeah. um, be the person responsible for influencing your trajectory in case you, you um, regret it or it's not the right yeah. call. Also, a lot of folks may not be the best people to be making suggested advice like that but in this oh, case yeah. it sounds like it was spot on this person i need to thank him you. i've never thanked him i really need to do that um but no wonderful wonderful friend and so then after after that first deferral i was like yeah i can just wait a year who cares and i taught my first lsat class and then i really got hooked on the bug because mm -hmm. as much as i liked the lsat as like ellen in theater mm -hmm. doing it I found a much, much greater challenge, which is, you know, the black box of how someone else is thinking mm -hmm. through any of these operations and how, how much more difficult that is to refine, debug, systematize of like controlling the way someone else thinks and refining their thinking, training their thinking to be able to emulate yeah. the thing that I was doing so naturally. Um, yeah. And so... And they say you really do know how to do something if you can teach it. 
Yeah. I mean, it took me six years to write The Loophole, um, which is the the book that kind of gave me this LSAT company. And mm -hmm. for those six years between, say, 2012 and 2018, I was just working with students, refining the methodology, testing things, learning from students, seeing what they could and couldn't do, and remaking a system just mm -hmm. from the ground up. And it was like I was in like a laboratory getting my own little LSAT PhD ready to put out my <laughs> dissertation. Yeah, pretty much. Um, which I look back at those like good old days now. It's like, oh, you know, I have a lot yeah. of nostalgia for yeah. those days of the loophole. So then um, in those days, were you thinking, oh, I'm going to convert this into a book? I'm going to convert this into a company? Or were you just like oh, passionate I, about what you were doing? It was... I always wanted to make a book and okay. like that, that was kind of the, the goal that, but I had to have like methodologies to be mm -hmm. able to do that. And so the, the loophole took a lot of, you know, try something, see if it works. Okay. It doesn't. Okay. Change this little thing. Okay. Now try it. And oh, this worked. All right. Now port it to five people. Okay. Now port, port it to 20 people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now it didn't work. And you know, and all of that process um, and so once those processes were actually set in stone, which now is, you know, something called translation, something called the clear is what came into the loophole, um, then getting it into a refined paper form in a form that, you know, could be sold was another, <laughs> another mm -hmm. big journey. Um, especially when like, I was, you know, some random girl in Palo Alto who had no freaking idea how to <laughs> start a business or anything like that. Like I, I often feel like, you know, I, the redheaded stepchild of Hampton in a way that, <laughs> you know, I, I was not like, and I'm going to make it in entrepreneurship. Right. I'm a business. Yeah. Person. I can see I, the future. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's no, I'm just very, very into this exact problem. And I mm -hmm. believe that I am uniquely suited and uniquely passionate to solve this problem for real people. And yeah. I will find a way to do that. And in so many ways, that is the best entrepreneur. The one that's just focused on, no, but truly focused on the problem. What is the problem? Solving the problem, obsessed about the problem and has a unique take on approaching that problem. So, so, so wanted to build the loophole. How are you sustaining yourself in those six years? Just from the income from teaching? Did you have yeah. other jobs? Yeah. No. Teaching. Um, yeah. All, all teaching. And so I I have always been uh, put in a lot of free hours type of person. Mm -hmm. I my I mentioned my mentor Dave. I did mm -hmm. work for his company for a couple of years in in that time period, um, mm -hmm. and taught students through that. But then I would also source my own students um, through just referrals and stuff of people I knew outside and. But I, you know, every two hour session was really like a three or four hour session that, yeah. you know, people would you know come over to my house. And I, I always said I never traveled. Everyone had to come to me because I had to be able yeah. to put people back to back to back. Yeah. And like, it was like these people were just my, you know, my muses, my best friends, and they are what the loophole is built on. Like when I look at any of the methodologies in the loophole, you know, I think of Mira, I think of Brittany, I think of Jessica, I think of Osina, of all of those people who were so trusting of me, even though I was some random girl in Palo Alto mm -hmm. with a picnic table in her living room, um, that they 
they believed in me before anybody else did. And they were willing to do whatever thing I came up with to just learn, see. And like, I know now that that kind of trust is very, very difficult to find. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very grateful to them. And I'm sure they're grateful to you too, Ellen, because I'm sure you got to help them tons. So I mean, how did good law schools? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how did then elemental prep? How did you get it started? Tell and and just for the context of other wannabe entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, and just getting a sense of your experience. Share what was that initial period like? And yeah. Then, and then I want to talk about how you scaled to a hundred k MRR, which is fascinating and inspiring. Yeah. So I um. I've always been a kind of like, you know, get on the road before the car even has wheels sort of person, um, which is good and bad. But <laughs> I I was very focused on writing the loophole and making okay. this kind of genre defining work. And I think at my heart, I am, you know, a creative and an empathetic person. I, I very much was like focused on, I need the loophole to be better than every single thing on the market in every possible way in as objective of a sense as possibly can be. And yeah. I, I always said, like, I prostrate at the altar of the book. The book doesn't work for me. I work for the book. And so in yeah. terms of, like, how Elemental was started, it really was just a company to wrap around the loophole. Um, and so when the loophole took also a year to get designed and laid out in InDesign, that's a whole other story. That's a whole, we have to do a whole other podcast on writing a book. <laughs> on the designing of the loophole. But, <laughs> so... As it got closer and closer to the loophole is going to come out, it's like, okay, now I need an entity. When mm -hmm. really, you know, you could say Elemental right, started makes in sense. 2012. Like, yeah. that wouldn't be super wrong. But the actual business entity that started was in 2018 and it accompanied the release of the loophole because, okay, now all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to have to have a, an entity to take in money from Amazon and from Shopify mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And like the big launch plan... <laughs> I'm like, you know, go from nobody to somebody in this industry was literally I made myself a promise. I was like, OK, until the manuscript is submitted, you're not allowed to have a public presence because that would be like rewarding for yourself for something you haven't done and haven't yeah. proved. And yeah. so then after I submitted the loophole, I you know made my elemental Ellen Reddit handle. And I was like, all right, the future begins today. And I would go on Reddit and look at people's like for help posts in RLSAT. And I was always really careful. I didn't want to look like I was marketing because I didn't yeah. want to market. Like I did want to help these people genuinely. And so I, but people never give you enough information in those public posts to actually right. help them. And so I would be like, oh, hey, you know, I want to help you, but I'm going to chat you now so you can give me more information. And so I would stay up until like 3 a.m. every night between like October and December, just chatting these strangers on Reddit about their LSAT problems yeah, and yeah. giving them advice and trying to solve it. And I was very like gentle about like ever mentioning anything about the loophole or anything I did. Mm -hmm. I, people would have to ask me. And then on Christmas Eve 2018, this guy wrote this very long post that actually gave a lot of information that you you really could engage with it and actually fix the guy's problems. And mm. so I was like, you know what? I'll actually write a long public post this time and go through and actually tell him stuff that could work. And I was like, I'm going to take a chance. I'll mention a few things from the loophole just because, you know, it's in the middle of a big help post. Like people will see I'm not just like being a scammer. Like right. I'm hoping I don't get attacked. And I actually met with him and gave him free tutoring on Christmas Eve night. And it was this great thing wow. and wonderful for us. 
a girl in Florida saw this comment on Christmas Eve and was like, what's the clear? Googled it, found out what the loophole was, bought the loophole, read it in the days between Christmas Eve and New Year's Day. And then on New Year's Day 2019, made this big Reddit post about how great the loophole is and how it, you know, gave her, I don't know, six points or something in a week. And that post then blew up. And from then on, Elemental Prep has self-propelled. And wow. it was just a word of mouth, like, explosion and of course you know reddit is a cruel mistress but <laughs> you have to you know, treat it gingerly um but from then on it really just the reddit community got a hold of it and i, I was accused of you know astroturf marketing and all the stuff that was not mm -hmm. true at all yeah but it was yeah. that it got too popular too fast that people mm -hmm. like couldn't believe it in a way well that's an attestation to how useful it was with reddit it's such a delicate organism to be with um, and I love hearing you staying up most nights, October through December. Um, and then having this one, it's like you're spreading your, your luck surface area there because then yeah. you had this one person who ha did have a public post that you could post about. And then this yeah. woman who bought it and it's wild, uh, yeah. crazy. Okay. So then how is, or so that then brought attention to loophole, which brought attention to elemental prep. And then you kind of started having a wait list and you didn't needed to build more systems around that. Yes. Yes. So as you can imagine, you know, the girl who stays up really late on Reddit <laughs> responding to posts and things is not exactly the person with like an ops team. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was when like all of a sudden I think I got thrown into the deep end of the pool of business of business and no freaking clue you know what to do at all I was like yeah oh gosh do I need to like have an assistant I probably need an assistant yeah. how do you get an assistant you know how do you do all this stuff in 24 hours oh shoot I probably need another person to help me exactly with the exactly <laughs> exactly and so you know I I definitely learned by fire made a million mm -hmm. million mistakes and have yeah. spent since January 2019 until now, essentially learning how and building the structures around yep. the demand. Um, yep. Because I have always, <laughs> in the history of Elemental, since that day in January 2019, had more demands than I could handle. Could. Yeah. And it's always been a very fraught emotional situation for me because mm -hmm. I love the students so much. I really, you know, I genuinely care about them a lot. And I don't like that I, I don't have all of the structures to serve them in the ways that I want to serve them. But of course, you know, getting all of those structures in place, it takes man hours or woman mm -hmm. hours. And it's hard. There isn't a manual on how to, you know, do payment processing with people yeah. in China or how to like set up a calendar that like, you know, is my calendar, yeah. which is super complicated. And so I, I made, you know, some good decisions throughout that time that definitely did get me to where I am today. But I always think Elemental is a living organism that's always growing, always changing, always getting better. And that's one of the things I love the most yeah. about it.
Yeah. And this is interesting what you're bringing up, Ellen, and I just want to call it out because I see this often with founders maybe who are not from non-traditional backgrounds. So like not coming from having seen a ton of entrepreneurs or a ton of like wealth management, financial management, things like that, is that I see that, and I would put myself in this category, um, that we tend to hesitate longer than necessary to make these investments in the business. So to maybe hire an executive assistant or someone in biz ops, which we were talking about last night, um, and kind of taking advantage of that to leverage, to, to be a source of leverage for the business and growth of the business. Um, and I just want to call that out for listeners and to say that that's also normal psychology, like you're trying to save money. And sometimes it is worthwhile to make the investment to grow your business further, which sounds like what you were learning there. I know yeah. you have some systems, right? Like you're building AI, Ellen. Um, you are hoping to build. If there's anyone your... listening to this podcast. <laughs> talk to Ellen. Talk to me. Because I, I want to partner with um, another another company who can do the actual building. But my, my dream is to mm -hmm. do a tiered um, subscription platform that lowest level is feeding the loophole into an AILN and AILN walks you through it, answers questions, can, you know, make novel drills with you and all of that sort of thing, just based on loophole content. Then next year, using all my online content, I have, you know, I, the thing I mentioned called the clear, it's something I made up. Now there's an answer key with 4,500 something answers in it for every question, you know, using mm -hmm. that as like the next tier and some of my other online content. And then on top of that, I have over 4,000 sessions of structured data tutoring notes that I take in Airtable that I'm imagining the highest tier will use, um, use that data to really provide tutoring in a box as much as possible. Um, and so that's the hope for the future. I've been scoping out partners of who I might want to work with to make this a real thing. Um, but, you know, in terms of how to scale tutoring, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Specifics of partners that you want to reach out to you are? Oh, I mean, anyone who has, you know, an AI subscription platform that can do what I just said, um, okay. that can house this sort of content, house, you know, a um, PDF version of the loophole that, you know, can't be scraped and taken down yeah. and pirated and all that, um, and can provide that AI version of Ellen, um, and can do a lot of the legwork yeah. <laughs> for, of course, a, you know, the fee of some kind, but that I, I want someone who's going to be a very active, uh, mm -hmm. active partner, because I know there would be demand for this. It's just a matter of with my schedule and all of the help that I provide finding, the bandwidth to really make that happen. Of course, of yeah. course. Um, and then tell us, Ellen, how you got to 100K MRR as a solo founder with so much bandwidth stretching. Have you been divvying up your product? Are there like different techniques, tactics, strategies that worked for you? Or is it plain brute force hours and getting them in and, and any advice for folks? Yeah. So, I mean, how partners. I did it, you, you heard the first part of the story. And so, yep. you know, that, that is how I was discovered and how the demand has swelled. Um, but in terms of maybe some, some strategies that I used that I wasn't aware I was using, but I think were very <laughs> good strategies now is I, I invented onto. a lot of methodologies in the loophole that had specific names. So, like I said, like translation is just me. I'm the only one who teaches translation. I'm the only one who teaches the clear. I invented the clear. And 
you know, if you want help with the clear because you read the loophole, well, you've got one choice. There isn't really anyone else who can teach that, um, that I will, you know, always have primacy over that. And, you know, there may be like random people who just got a 172 who are like, and I can teach the clear, but like, I don't think anybody really thinks there's a major competition there. And so if you're somebody who wants that, well, it's a market of one. And I think everyone should strive to create mm -hmm. markets of one. And especially in crowded industries where it's like, okay, I'm a coach. And what I do is provide coaching. And it's like, okay, well, that's your, nice. And I'm sure you're a very good coach, just like I'm a good LSAT tutor. But it doesn't really provide a strong differentiation. And so I think that all of my demand that, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have is based on, first off, I think the authenticity that people can see I approach this problem with. Like mm -hmm. I am, I think known as the most passionate person in the world about the LSAT and, you know, it's like being the nicest guy in poker. It's not that hard to be the most passionate person in the world about the LSAT, but, um, that authenticity, but then also the market of one effect that, mm -hmm. The loophole is at a very accessible price point and it lays out all of these methodologies. And it's also a complete solution for someone who wants to self-study. So it's not like some kind of, you know, quick and easy ebook that's like eight pages and people call it a book. Like it's a mm -hmm. it's an actual product with a system in it that someone could use on their own. And so that introductory product, like I call the loophole just profitable marketing. Um, I'm never really very concerned with how much money the loophole makes. Like the loophole is, you know, in the black, but I don't think it's that in the black. I keep the price very purposefully low. Um, it's like maybe close to half the price of a lot of the other top books. LSAT prep books. And it's because I'm not trying to make money off the loophole. Um, mm -hmm. I more just want to help people. I want it to be an accessible solution because I know how expensive my tutoring and my other stuff is. And so mm -hmm. if somebody can, you know, get the loophole, that's, that can be awesome. enough. Right. Um, that's but your contribution to everyone else who can't afford your everything else. Teaching. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so in terms of how, how that revenue comes in though, I think another smart thing was I, I have very strictly defined structures on how I will do tutoring, um, that everyone has to have a two hour recurring slot every week at the exact same time. And I think not giving um, students a lot of flexibility, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's good and it's bad, but I think that flexibility often can, you know, sabotage both parties because sure, it's great for me and that I have a predictable stream of my work, but also I think it serves the student much better to have that rigid structure of checking in, even just the other day, because now I've, you know, a 25 person wait list again, um, mm -hmm. and 24 people on the calendar. What are you going to do, Ellen? Um, but just the other day, like two days ago, someone said, oh, Ellen, but don't you think we could go to every other week? And, mm -hmm. and two people could share a slot. And this is someone, um, who was talking to me about working on my calendar. It was someone within Elemental. And I was like, no, even though it would benefit me because, mm -hmm. you know, I would get to, I would get through the wait list faster. People would be less mad at me. People with higher rates would get on the calendar faster. All of those things that like, I have every incentive to do that, to allow people to switch, like uh, switch off weeks. I won't mm -hmm. do it because I know the results will be worse. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to sabotage a student's success 
all right. so that I can deal with my weightless problem, you know? Right, right. Because again, the measure of your business is the quality of the tutoring and those results. And so sacrificing that just shoots you in the foot down the line. Super smart. I also like the same time slot too, because then once you, once one person's done, you know, you have this time slot, you can offer that to people on the wait list and see who's it, available. I think that's really exactly. interesting. Ellen, how, speaking of all your tutoring, as we're going to wrap up soon, how do you have a brief version on how we can teach uh, folks to be a top 1% reader? Any top things to think about? We're having a kid at the end of March. Is there anything I can start doing with that kiddo sooner? Um, Ooh. So brief tips. Um, I think speaking in for a little, little one, speaking mm -hmm. in complete sentences as much as mm -hmm. possible and using adult words. Don't speak to them like a kid, like speak to them like an adult, um, because like little minds are just they're mimic machines. And so if yeah. they have things to mimic that use you know more advanced words, more advanced sentence structures, that's only going to serve them well in the future. Yeah. Um, I also, I mean, I have like radical beliefs about like children's media. <laughs> so mm -hmm. <laughs> that I think, you know, giving kids classic literature, like mm -hmm. you know, Jane Eyre, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, stuff like that, when they're too young to really get it, just acclimates them to complex structures, complex words, creates a curiosity much earlier. That's what I personally had in my life is like I didn't watch any commercial TV um, until I was like way, way older at all. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I would like memorize The Wizard of Oz, watching The Wizard of Oz over and over again. I didn't have access to a lot of contemporary anything. Right. It was almost like I was raised in kind of a, like a time warp a little bit that I was reading classic books and watching classic TV, and that sort of thing. And I, I do think that that did make me much, much more acclimated to um, complex sentences and complex vocabulary from a young age and created a sense of like less fear surrounding mm -hmm. those sorts of words. Um, and so that's one thing as just a basis, but then also ingraining the habit of translation um, and quipping from a young age, which is very, very easy, um, that essentially all you have to do is when a kid reads something, have them read it out loud and have them intone it. Like I, I always mm. say I'm 20% cartoon character in how I talk, you know, that it's very exaggerated that you want to like experiencing challenges or mental blocks you've faced and overcome. Like I just read a line of the email yeah. <laughs> that... <laughs> having that go up and down because that song yeah. is hardwired to be retained of like when they read out loud, making them like feel it like because emotions mm. are the thing most linked to memory. And then after they've read it like that, have them close their eyes and they have to tell you what it said in their own words, not the exact mm. words. Then they have to say something about it. And it could be a mm. little joke, a reaction, something from their life or asking you a question, what you think about that. And when that happens and they get used to doing that on every chunk of text they interact with, they'll become active, critical thinkers in no time. And it starts to become very fast, very ingrained, happens in your head without you even realizing it. That makes so much sense. It becomes like system one as opposed to system two where for me, at least that sounds like it's not system one for me. 
what you just described, the full engagement, like the quipping on it, and then the, okay, what would you think about this for everything I read? Um, and what a great tip. So I feel like I could also just start practicing that myself. Yeah, no, I, I want to do it. And I'm, you know, experiencing now more interest of, uh, people who want to learn this outside the LSAT and it's like Mm -hmm. such a gift. It's so exciting. And so it's something I definitely want to get more into in the future is teaching this process to like business leaders. And so, Hey, if you're listening and you're a business leader and you want to learn, yeah, find Ellen. <laughs> I'm excited for your your session on this in a few months as well. My goodness, Ellen, this was so fun. We didn't get to cover everything we wanted to, but I'm not surprised at all. We'll have to have you on again. Of course. Uh, I'm a chatty one. I I, I know I great. go on too long. <laughs> that was awesome. All right, y'all. Uh, we're going to wrap up the pod here today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share. Oh.